Welcome back to Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Darren Exo Academian. Darren, we, uh, by my math here, uh, we just finished uh, about a podcast's worth of content before we hit record. <laughs> uh, and so we're about to do uh, the actual show. But for folks that are listening, we just want you to know that before we hit record, we uh, do meet and, and talk and kind of get into quite a bit of conversation before we really officially get started. Um, and that conversation is not just catching up, but trying to cover some of the ground that we hope to cover in the episode um, and explore some content that we won't and maybe explore later in future shows. Uh, so Darren, it's always good to catch up with you and I'm looking forward to this, uh, to the show, our 19th episode. Indeed. 19. It's, uh, they're following along pretty quickly. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because we're going to cover some material tonight that is fairly popular in ufology right now. But I think one thing we do on this show, we try to do anyway, uh, we'll let the audience decide how well we do it, but we, we try to bring a, sort of a deeper perspective, a broader perspective. We ask the questions behind the questions. You know, we look at some of the assumptions behind some of the hypotheses that are put out there. Um, when there are sometimes uh, like a fill in the blanks kind of scenario with ufology, like for instance, right now, why is this report taking so long? You know, what are the secrets that are being hidden? You know, people have various assumptions that are fueling the options they come to mind for them. And that's for me anyway, it's more interesting to look at those assumptions sometimes than it is the, uh, the multiple choice questions that they come up with. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, just like the name of our show, Liminal Frames, we tend to kind of thrive in these in-between states. Uh, we're okay with, uh, I think, holding some of this ambiguity uh, together as much as possible and um, sitting with that. It's important to sit with that and in some instances be uncomfortable with uh, not knowing and, and being in between a state of, uh, of ignorance and, and, and knowledge. Um and so, uh, you know, with that being said, let's jump into this tonight. I know you, you already alluded to it to some degree, and this is some territory that we've covered a little bit before, but uh, I think it's well worth treading again. And we're going to get into some of the ne potentially negative reasons why we're not having disclosure, some of the negative aspects uh, related to the UFO phenomena uh, that may have kept folks up at night. Uh, there's certainly lots of anecdotes that we've heard uh the word somber of course is the more recent but uh jimmy carter and his you know crying episode comes to mind as well the point is there's a lot of deeply troubling things potentially uh related to disclosure and just like you would expect us to do uh we're certainly going to point out that how troubling it may be is a function of who that person and who those groups happen to be. But nevertheless, uh, I think, you know, ontologically destabilizing is a different way of putting it and is certainly true. Um, so Darren, where would you like to start? I know we had a recent, uh, you know, show from uh, Thomas Thompson, uh, who uh, put out on his podcast, an episode uh, that he was relaying from, I think it was like a family friend, uh, or a family connection through um, a girlfriend and uh, of an episode where they had uh, stumbled across, like, I guess, an alien being at an Air Force base somewhere in Michigan. And that individual had relayed this encounter uh, 
uh, to a member of their family. And that family member was the person telling the story. And they were basically hinting that maybe the fact that they had shared this knowledge uh, potentially had gotten that individual killed. And it wasn't just the knowledge of this being that ended their lives or maybe got them in the crosshairs of some government agency, but it was something else that couldn't even be articulated. And uh, maybe we can spend a little bit of time thinking about what that might be uh, and uh, whether or not it is something that we would be deeply troubled by. Right. And one thing I would point out to people right away um, is that I, I like to ask people to go through this spiritual exercise sometimes or energetic exercise, you could call it. And rather than using our rational brains and sort of creating pros and cons lists like we're prone to do, uh, like say if you're thinking about moving to St. Louis or Melbourne or wherever, you know, Tokyo, and you start, you're not really in touch with how you really feel about it. So you, you break out a list and you start going, you know, well, pro, you know, there's lots of nice restaurants, you know, you know, con, I don't speak the language very well, right? Things like this, you go back and forth. But what is sometimes more useful is to suddenly have someone sort of like set up a scenario for you. You're three months in, you're sitting in your apartment in Tokyo on top of this skyscraper. How do you feel? And sometimes in that moment, we can tune into something in our gut, something central to who we are that's transrational. And we'll know, we'll either we'll have a good feeling or a negative feeling. Now, after the fact, we sometimes try to attach pros and cons to that. But that initial vibe is very telling and there's even been uh, research done on this where sometimes we convince ourselves we make decisions based on rational, you know, yay or nay kind of points, right? But really what often happens more so, and they see this in like different resonance in different parts of the body, that you see signs that the decision's been made. Then after the fact, like a millisecond later, we start cognitively going because that's good and that's good. In other words, we justify it after the fact, but we've made that gut decision already, or we're we're in tune with it almost outside of time, really. So I set all that up to 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 bring up our scenario here, where when you hear these stories, right, that don't have the end, right? They kind of just set it up and say, What could that be? Right. Then notice the response in yourself. Notice where you go, right? And that'll tell you as much about yourself or more about yourself often than what the actual matter that you're considering is. And that can be a very useful exercise to understand what's really going on with you. And I've talked before on this show about energetic resonance and spiritual hygiene and being aware of your own energy so you can transmute it. And when you're going into altered states of consciousness and reaching out to other kind of beings, you want to be aware of those things. This is another practice you can use to begin to be in tune with that. So yeah, like you kind of set it up already. The notion here was that um, Thomas had drawn this picture of a gray alien, basically a quintessential gray alien. And then his girlfriend's father said, yeah, that looks like what my cousin saw uh, behind, you know, this sort of glass partition at an air force base. And the thing was still alive, but in the process of dying and they were trying to figure out where it was coming from. And like you alluded to already, this cousin had told, I guess, one too many people and ended up dying in a car accident, which was kind of nefarious because there wasn't many details to the car accident. No one could find out who the actual other driver was. They said they passed away as well, but no one could find out who they were. It wasn't in the newspaper article. So there's some things that looked a bit questionable, which led this cousin's family to believe that perhaps he'd been taken out basically because he knew too much and he was, you know, loose lips, sink ships kind of thing. 
But the interesting part, like you pointed to, was that it wasn't just the fact that there was a gray alien behind a glass partition at an Air Force base in Michigan that was the gotcha. It was something else that he knew that was too dangerous to know that ended up getting him killed. And maybe he hadn't even told people that yet, but just the fact that he knew it was too dangerous, right, is sort of the implication there. And then the added really interesting implication or, or nuance is that, so this father of this girlfriend of Thomas that's telling him this story says, you know, and I don't know that I could reveal that either, even on my deathbed, right? Which that goes into new territory. So right there, notice your your own response. Where does your mind go, right? Because clearly at that point, it's not self-interest that's making him hold back from telling the truth, right? It's something else. So then that raises questions like, is she, has he decided that that truth is so destabilizing that society is better off not knowing? Is that what he's getting at? What, what do you think when you hear that? Right. I was trying to think of like uh, putting myself in the shoes of folks that um, maybe reacted to this. I saw some reactions, you know, immediately go to the, oh, well, they're definitely demons then. Uh, or um, another one that jumped to my mind is, uh, you know, they're reptilians. They just look like humans, you know, so they're in charge and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. So there's, no matter the scenario, I think the natural response to what could be that bad is that the power dynamic that we are used to uh, in terms of our place in the world, in society, is not what we think it is. And we are get, we, we have gotten the short end of that stick, whatever it happens to be. Now, uh, as I say all of that, I also want to point out that uh, we're in the West uh, we live in a in a first world country. We have a lot of resources and great things. So, things that seem destabilizing to us uh, may not be even where anywhere close to what would be stabilize, destabilizing to those that aren't in you know kind of the conditions that we're accustomed to. And I recognize the relative luxury that we have to be having this conversation over this technology, and, and no one's you know preventing us from doing this and. Uh, you know, we have the internet freely flowing into our homes and we feel pretty comfortable uh, in the wintertime here, just, you know, being in, in the places that we live. So there's a lot of comfort around our situation uh, that I don't want uh, that to go unnoticed because I think it does influence and, and paint the way in which we think about these scenarios. Um, so yeah, for me personally, I, I, I have a lot of different ideas, but I don't know, none of them really land uh, or resonate with me very, very strongly, um, in part because I think I'm more comfortable with uh, a variety of different things. I'm also, immediately when I hear a story like that, I'm like, well, it was destabilizing to those who were there. It may not be destabilizing to me, you know, so and so who was there? When, when was this? Uh, what kind of context and cultural background? grounds that these folks bring to that situation, all of those things, at least in my mind, influence whatever, uh, you know, dramatic revelation it might be and, and may change that because it's situated within that framework. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the, the more set in your ways you are with your worldview, right, with your perspective on reality, then the more damaging, at least initially, you know, energetically, emotionally, it may be to you to have that questioned. Whereas the more nuanced you are, the more you can hold your worldview lightly, maybe because as we've discussed before, 
you've been through various iterations of worldviews and so you don't hold any of them so tightly anymore because you know you're likely to evolve yet again. I think for people like that, uh, any kind of revelation is not nearly as destabilizing, at least in, in potentia. Um, and I think back to when, you know, of course, like you already hinted at the the famous situation <clears throat> where, you know, Lou Elizondo talked about something being sobering or somber. And it was an interesting sociological experiment just to see where people leapt to from there, right? Like, oh, well, clearly he's saying this. I mean, writing's on the wall. And I'm like, really? I mean, that's just an adjective. That's that's a big leap to make. And And secondly, to your point, it's like, I don't want to rely on someone else's adjective based on their worldview, their life experience, their position of privilege. You know, uh, I want to have the data because how that data impacts people will vary depending on the position they're in. And like we talked about how, you know, how much they're into certitude with their worldview and whatnot. Uh, but it's, it's definitely interesting, I think more interesting actually, to sit back and watch where people go with that than, than the actual event itself. Yeah, other things come to mind where it's like the, uh, the advent of the printing press and uh, people are like, I can't believe people are going to you know, start reading and that's just going to change everything and it's going to be so bad. And you know, here we are thinking you know, it's a dramatically wonderful revolution that took place. Uh, and we can point to a lot of other examples, a lot like that, uh, you know, segregation. There are plenty of people who thought that was going to be awful and unnatural and, you know, somber. Oh, you know, God forbid, you know, we had treat everybody equally. Um, and we, uh, most of us, I'm not going to say all of us because uh, the world is so full of uh, some pretty bigoted racist people. But most of us uh, look at that and think how absolutely horrid that was. And so, uh, you know, one person somber is another person's, you know, great, fantastic, thank goodness. Why is it taking so long? And so, you know, I want folks to keep that in mind because uh, it's impossible for us without knowing exactly what it is to really interpret what that means. Uh, you know, so somber, we're all internalizing that. Oh, somber for me is such and such. We could be completely detached from reality of what, whatever that in fact happens to be. And it could end up being something great. Right. Or it could be something that's great to one person and not great to someone else. So so let's throw Absolutely. out a few uh, just for the sake of argument here. Um, <clears throat> some that I've come across that I've even, you know, seen some pretty compelling evidence uh, pointing in this direction. One of them is that um, some of these alien beings that have been captured, whether we're talking about Roswell or even post-Roswell, that one of the big... Um, aha moments that was shocking when the autopsies were done was that there was basically DNA in common between these gray aliens and human beings. So let's take that first. Um, how do you think that would, that would hit the masses if that was uh, released to the public? Right. Uh, oof, that's a good one. I think folks uh, would absolutely be uh, stunned by that. Uh, at least most of the world would be. Um, I think others would be uh, willing to accept that there is a sort of a shared lineage, genetic shared traits, uh, you know, but then the questions certainly flow. Are we uh, descendants? Are we relatives? Are we an experiment? Are we hybrids? You know, what, what, what are the, what is the nature of our relationship to these beings? Um, so there are certainly uh, no end of questions and, and, and no easy answers to those. 
But I think to a large number of individuals, yes, it would be, you know, quite disturbing. Um, at the same time, I can remember when I listened to the audiobook uh, uh, *Sapiens*, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I'm going to mispronounce his name, but it, you know, just listening to the the story of human history and how there were multiple human species occupying the planet at the same time—that's something I had learned, you know, in grade school. But for some reason, just never really internalized it all that well. And when you hear someone really kind of talk through all of that, that we're, you know, kind of rubbing elbows with d different human species, uh, that, you know, it's, it's pretty a, a pretty alien kind of foreign concept to us today, where we all are, you know, Homo sapiens sapiens. So it's uh, it's I think that that might be a good corollary thought experiment to getting more comfortable with that kind of revelation. Right. And I, I think about on previous POC episodes when I've talked about whether it's, um, you know, hardline religious fundamentalists, you know, whether Islamic or Christian or whatever, uh, the particular brand doesn't really matter so much as the developmental level. Because if you believe that there's a place in the cosmos for mortal beings that are intelligent, meaning us human beings, and all you have on top of that is the kind of lesser intelligent animals, which don't really count in that perspective in terms of, you know, uh, being viewed as intelligent, sentient beings in the same way that humans are. And after that, you basically have spiritual entities like demons and angels, right? So for those kind of people, you think back to how the revelation that evolution was real was, was shocking to these people, right? And to this day, there's some people who like stand by a six-day creation you know, uh, women came from literally the rib of a man, you know, and that's how that all happens. Kind of on the fly, hey, this is not so good. What do we? Let's grab a rib and let's make this happen, right? And, and and some people really take that as the literal truth, and would balk at the idea that we have any kind of uh, shared heritage, you know, genetically with you know any kind of apes or chimpanzees or whatever, right? That some people, mm. I remember one time seeing this this documentary where this daughter who was now in her early 20s, who had been raised as a fundamentalist Christian, had come to see that evolution was depicting something real, right? And, and I remember her dad saying, you think we come from monkeys? Like he, he was just so adamant, <laughs> like, how could you possibly believe such a thing? And it was almost more like, um, I'm too high and mighty, you know, I'm, I'm royalty, you know, how dare you say I come from the commoners known as the chimpanzees, almost like that kind of notion. Right. Rather than seeing this this uh, beautiful transcendence that happens over time amongst the created order, right? Um, mm. So yeah, I think for those people again, with these hardline distinctions, it's one thing if you have have human beings, right? Sure, maybe there's some Neanderthal mixed in, right? But but the idea that there is beings from other planets that have our DNA, then that not only challenges your sense of your heritage, but it challenges your sense of cosmology, right? It challenges your sense of the ultimate reality, right? And and how how can this be the case that these beings exist when I don't see them attested to, you know, on a superficial level in my biblical text or whatever? You know, it, it mm. raises all sorts of questions, which again brings us back to that notion we've talked about many times, which is that uh, disclosure is very complicated because people are coming at that topic from very different worldviews. Mm -hmm. When your world is 
made to be or to feel uh, ontologically tiny, that's where the destabilization begins, right? So I think that that's what happens here is you've got a situation where uh, everything that you thought that you knew about the order of things and in reality itself and uh, the things which really, quite frankly, we go throughout our day-to-day routines not even thinking much about, but they become front and center concerns for how we order our world. And they are screaming at us from the stage saying, you've got all of this wrong. Uh, And that has a ripple effect, a downstream effect on every other thing that we do. And I think it's easy to see how something that seemingly benign like that, this, you know, DNA heritage being maybe the, the same, you know, could be incredibly destabilizing and, 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 and quite frankly, possibly dangerous, you know, for most of the world, because you've got a, a, a you know, how many people are there now? 8 billion, 8 billion people, uh, the majority of whom might all of a sudden wake up the next day and question their life choices and everything that they're, they're doing. And, the way their society is structured and the way their their family operates. And I mean, all of these things could come under the microscope of reexamination and they could be thrown out the window. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a lot to consider. And I think if you're, and I will talk about this in more detail, but if you're those decision makers who can kind of keep that knowledge inside the box, as opposed to letting it out the door, uh, I, I could easily see why you just, you know, keep it in the box in the vault and, and, and go about your day. Yeah, I think, you know, there's this expression, kick the can down the road. And I think mm. that one of the things that's very evident about our political culture is that, you know, because of, you know, the uh, the interval between elections um, in our country, people tend to think in two year or four year terms and maybe eight year terms. And that's about it unless you're a Supreme Court justice or something, there for life. Um, So built into our very system is um, a lack of the distant view, you know, and it's not even really part of our cultural milieu to make decisions based on what's the best interest of our grandchildren, for instance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So you could see how in that kind of culture that already exists, when there's so many question marks, could things go well? Maybe, but there's also a chance it could be incredibly destabilizing. And frankly, that just makes my job harder. So let the next elected official four years down the road make that decision. You know, there's no reason I have to make it now, right? Um, in other words, I think part of the challenge with that kind of thinking, that kind of mindset is sometimes there is short-term pain in, in, in service of long-term gain. And the problem is the way our very system is set up, very, very few people are asking those questions. Um, And that in the long term might prevent us from actually making systemic changes, which are very destabilizing potentially in the short term, but make our society much much more cohesive, coherent, and sustainable in the long term. Mm. Right. And we have not cultivated that kind of thinking. Um, at least, at least we haven't in the West. I think, uh, China, I've read somewhere, you know, their way of thinking is generally in the hundreds of years, you know, ours is in, like you mentioned, really kind of political cycles, which are quite, quite small. Um, 
So that that's certainly one aspect of it. I mean, what would be another uh, potential revelation from that story that, that comes to mind for you that could be terribly destabilizing? Well, this is one that I've heard. I, I don't find it very compelling at all, but I hear it raised a lot. And again, from my perspective, I find it more interesting in terms of what that's saying about the people who are raising this than the possibility of it actually being true. But that is the notion that this is actually a prison planet, You know that we're basically cattle for some of these beings um, and mm. that this is what maybe this conceited gray alien said on its deathbed was, ah, oh, listen, this is who you are to us. And who do you think you are to keep me like this? You know, or whatever, you know, I mean, mm. uh, that, that's another one people leap to is, um, what if we're not king of the castle? You know, we're not top of the food chain. What if we've been deluded all this time into believing that? Um, I mean, I, I think there's all sorts of reasons on the face of it why that's not the correct answer in my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it, what's more interesting is how our collective unconscious and sometimes our personal unconscious will fill in the gaps, right. With our own fears. And I, and I've said this before, I think the, the fact that we have this shared memory of like you talked about in previous generations, keeping slaves, you know, actually saying that certain types of homo sapiens sapiens you will serve this other group. Or now I think about mm-hmm. how we, you know, have these mass farms where we put chickens in these tiny little, you know, containers. They hardly ever see the light. And we just, you know, have made a science out of butchering, you know, hundreds of thousands a day or whatever it is. I don't really know the details. I'm a vegetarian, so I try not to be aware, but something like that. Right. Uh, so we have that in our memory. So it's not hard for us to go, ooh, what if the shoe was on the other foot? You know, what if... Mm-hmm. Suddenly you you look at the whole thing very differently when you go, would I be okay with this if I could be the one that was a step down in the food chain? What would that mean? And again, I think that that says something more interesting about us and how we make decisions and, and what we're cognizant of than it does about what this actually, what this revelation actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Um Nobody likes the idea of being a prisoner uh, to having their mobility and their freedom and their their way of life constricted. Um, but the irony is that we already live in very constricted ways, whether that be uh, just the ways our society happened to be structured uh, or the ways in which we think uh, and how much ideas constrain uh, who we are and, and limit what we choose to do. Uh, so I know that's very, you know, philosophical, I guess, and people kind of, you know, can poo poo that a little bit, but, you know, certainly our ideas absolutely frame the way in which we think about the world. Um, so uh, yeah, that idea doesn't resonate too much with me either. Um, the, the prison planet notion, um, mainly because I think I take a, a, a bigger view of the situation. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, I guess uh, I think of it as like there's a ladder of life, right? And and you know we're all kind of a part of that chain of being in a way. And uh, if something were to actually feed off of us, uh, just like we may feed off of other things, like that's all part of the chain of being. And uh, there's a grander story at play there than than maybe what happens in those individual interactions. Um, well, you make you make a really great point yeah. there, and. Let me, let me make a segue here on that. So 
I think when people think about Prison Planet, they have a very particular notion, right? They, they, mm. I don't know what they imagine. Like they're going to suddenly land and craft and make us mine gold for the rest of our lives or something. I don't know what they're thinking, right? But something very right. sort of like literal and physical and, you know, something uh, akin to us keeping cattle in a field, right? Um, that we, these cattle maybe think that they're free and having the good life, but they're actually serving us. Mm. Now, while I think that kind of, sort of literal view is is mistaken. I, I do think, and I've talked to you, to you about this, and we probably mentioned it to some degree on this podcast, and I've mentioned it to some degree on POC, the fact that there is an energetic exchange between different dimensions. And um, absolutely, that's a real thing. And, and that shouldn't be even hard for us to imagine, because as you kind of just alluded to, we, we can have relationships with bacteria in our gut, right? And uh, there's all these alien intelligences in a way living inside of us already. We are already our hybrid being. We already are like this uh, kind of synergistic um, symbiotic environment for all these different uh, kind of life forms. And eventually they kind of work out an arrangement that's beneficial to both, hence symbiosis. So I think something like that is definitely going on. Um, and that would be shocking to some people, but I just don't think it's on this literal physical level. Um, mm -hmm. but, but nevertheless, it's, it, again, it's just interesting that people go there. Yeah. Um, well, to me, the, the, this highlights the, uh, interplay between those who are close to the information, those who aren't close to the information, and even those in that inner circle, how there very well could be differences of opinion, uh, on what might be going on. Um, you know, specifically too, with this individual that, you know, kind of spilt the beans about what they saw. I mean, yes, it sounded very profound or you know, impactful, but not so much that they didn't feel constrained in telling at least one close family member, if not other people. Um, so, it, you know, that gives you a little peek, I think, behind the curtain of the way in which these uh, situations or these this kind of knowledge is interpreted by those who are closest to it and how they choose to wield that knowledge for their benefit uh, or, or at the, at the expense of our ignorance of it. And so, you know, do you think that also kind of hints at the, the battles that are happening behind the scenes between, you know, th those in power that we, we hear this all the time, right? There are some who, uh, are in favor of kind of getting this information out. There are some that don't want that information out. There are debates about whether one is right, one is wrong, uh, you know, as if we might be able to, even if it came out, as if we might be able to say, oh, well, you know, see, we were right all along. That was the right thing to do. I mean, <laughs> it assumes that we we might even have any idea what it actually is. But, uh, you know, what what's your sense of what's happening there? And what do you think is important for us to keep in mind as we, you know, kind of, hold our expectations uh, in the balance here of what might be coming out? Yeah, that's a great question. And we can probably go back and forth on this because I think there's numerous variables to think about. One you kind of hinted at there. So I'll, I'll start there, even though you could kind of end there, but I'll start there in the sense that one thing the public seems to assume a lot of the time is that what the secret keepers have it's a coherent understanding of what this is, right? And so they're frustrated. Why won't you just let it out? You know, like, how is it fair that you know it and we don't? 
And maybe what they're thinking on the inside is we may have some data. We may have a lot of data, but that doesn't necessarily we have a, have, mean we have a coherent understanding of what this is, what it means for reality, nor does it mean we have a you know unanimous decision around what it means. In fact, I think part of the infighting that's going on that creates this kind of situation where we get a sense that things are about to break and then they don't. You know, we've had this big long delay with this government report. I think that points to the battles going on behind the scenes. And it's not just about those who want to keep the secret and those who want to get it out. There's also everything in between. You know, like some people are convinced it's bad news. It's demons, right? We've talked about this before, the Collins elite kind of notion that to even acknowledge it and publicly announce it gives it a foothold in our reality that could mean our civilization's demise, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Other people who say it's one thing a government should never do is announce something as real and then have no solution for how to deal with it, right? That's that's the worst thing a government can do because the whole point of a government in terms of the theoretical reason for it being there is to govern, right? To have some sort of capacity to control the totality in a way that's in the best interest, presumably, for the whole populace. So what good does it do the populace or the government in terms of their ability to hold on to governing power when they come out and admit we have no idea what this is or how to control it and um, nothing prevents, like I've mentioned before, a group of aliens showing up in your bedroom, no matter if you're hidden behind Fort Knox or... you know, whatever that facility at NORAD is, um, you know, it it would literally do no good. You know, you could be behind a 20 foot lead wall and it won't make any difference. So it just gets, it gets really, really complex, you know, again, not just about what it is, there's differences of opinion on that. You know, we've we've discussed before that governments are a cross-section of society, you know. You and I, before we went on the air tonight, we talked about how military groups tend to, you know, edge towards more the conservative end of things. So they, they therefore have more traditional understandings of reality, right? They're more likely than the average population to to lean a bit more conservative. So it's often those people who are making the decisions about this, right? It's, It's from their worldview that the decision is being made for everyone else. So I think that's, that's something people need to be cognizant of. Mm hmm. Right. And another thing we talked about a little bit before the the show tonight is the kind of legacy of interpretation that might be at work there in a room like that. Um, So it's not just a matter of, oh, we, you know, captured this and we're all now seeing it for the first time. Uh, I think we're under the impression that this is uh, a kind of knowledge that has been bouncing around uh, the secret halls of the government for, for many, many decades now. And those who may have initially encountered this, uh, whatever it may be, or aspects of it, uh, approached it from a particular perspective. And, uh, you know, they were living in a particular time and place, and, and there were, you know, geopolitical factors at, at work there that, and, and cultural factors at work there that may have uh, led them down a kind of decision path that made a ton of sense. Um, and then that way of thinking that, that adopted uh, perspective on this gets passed down to successive individuals who become part of those programs. So it becomes an inherited, you know, kind of DNA of, of the programs themselves. 
And uh, so what we may be experiencing now is, is really the it's legacy thinking within legacy programs. And I think that's uh, very important to, to keep in mind that uh, there could very well be totally different perspectives, but they just might not be all that prevalent within these groups. Uh, and so the, the reasons for keeping the secret could be, I don't know, for some reason or another kind of antiquated from the way we might look at it now. But it's also that, you know, old adage, you know, the devil, you know, is better than the devil that you don't. And so it's much easier to say, well, let's just, uh, if we can anyway, keep a lid on this uh, for the time being, because uh, we're already dealing with, uh, you know, wars and economic instability and, and pandemics and all these other problems that, you know, we're not even getting those things uh, all that uh, done, done all that well, you know, so we're having difficulty juggling those. Let's not introduce yet one more thing to the equation, particularly if we don't really even know all that much to say about it. Yeah. And I think um, on that point, the degree to which you're willing to allow change to come in is largely dependent on how much you think the status quo is worth maintaining, right? So if, if you have a comfortable existence and you know, you've, you've got your regular paycheck and your pension's pretty much wrapped up and you have a nice house with a family and dogs, you know, maybe, you know, these other existential threats that everyone's talking about just don't, don't seem close enough to home to really persuade you, right? On the other hand, you might be someone who looks at, for instance, how climate change is really impacting the planet already and how much landmass is just barely above sea level, right? And how we keep hearing these alarms go off around, you know, the already the, the degree of warming is much higher, you know, is pacing, much outpacing what we were expecting to begin with. Um, and you look at, for instance, the number of animal species that have been wiped off the planet in the last 50 years, you know, and I think it's something like more than the sum total of all of the previous history or that we've been recording or whatever, some, some large number anyway. Mm -hmm. So someone like that might go, or they might look at it and say, we've still got this, you know, um, immoral disparity between, not just between say CEOs and the people who are the frontline workers of their companies, which I think almost everyone would agree is this obscene level of disparity, but then just the disparity between the developing world and the first world, right? Even though we share a planet, right? And um, if you look at it that way, you, you might believe that a shock to the system is exactly what we need. In fact, you look at, look at the world like a patient on the table, a shock to you know wake their heart up is the only chance they have for survival, right? That the status quo, just watching that body on the table, right? That's non-responsive is not not a solution, not an option. So that that's really interesting to me. Um, another thing that came to mind when you brought up this notion that you know these legacy perspectives on this phenomenon, right? That um, something that came to mind was something that Omega Point brought up in a, an interview with Richard Dolan um, that I know we're going to get into in a little bit for their their paper that they wrote uh, called Loose Threads. And he said something really uh, profound where he said that what you focus on will, will determine what you miss, which was a great, mm -hmm. great point. And it's so true. And so, for instance, if you have a uh, a fundamentalist religious perspective, you might see the dart hit the center of the dartboard, right? Aha, we've got this. We've got, you know, spiritual manipulation. We've got uh, ritual abuse. We've got whatever might 
you know, whatever, pick your poison there in terms of ways that some of these others um, seem to dominate human beings, right? Um, and so you go, that fits the bill right there. Do we need to go further? I mean, come on, we got A, B, C, mm-hmm. looks like demons A to close. me. And maybe it's the outlier elements that, that question whether or not that, that's actually the best fit. And I think in any kind of scientific endeavor or any kind of rational endeavor, we, we, we face this challenge. We've evolved to take shortcuts. We've evolved to quickly look for patterns and make decisions like on the fly because that keeps us alive, right? That served us well. But in these kinds of situations, we need to actually discipline ourselves to slow down, to not leap to the first conclusion that comes to mind, to pay as much attention to the outlier data as the central data, and and be very proactive about testing other hypotheses. My concern is that some of these people were not trained in those kinds of faculties, right? They Again, these are sometimes military people. They think, you know, you go with your gut, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's a certain kind of philosophy and sure. culture, right, that they inherit there. And and because it often have because it's such a secret, it hasn't been doled out to the research community, the academic community, who are more familiar with trying to take something and be very methodical about not jumping to conclusions and and always paying attention to outlier data as much as you can. So this is part of the problem too, is is not just what the data is, but who gets to look at it. And and with that too is a power issue. Um, I don't want you in my kitchen to see how I make my special whatever it is uh, because I love it. It's my family recipe. You know, I'm not going to give it to you. I don't want you to see it. But when you get in there and you look at it, you realize you're going to you're going to tell me. Wait a minute, you've been making this sauce this way, and and you think it's Italian. It's not Italian at all. It's you know you're going to you know, shatter my world. And, you know, you might take that in a totally di- different direction. And uh, that would make me uncomfortable. Um, so uh, there are a lot of implications to this. And um, I think that we really are at a juncture in our human story where our world powers are, I think, in some ways struggling with how to continue on with the status quo using status quo thinking and, and status quo tools. Uh, when the populations at large, I think, have a growing sense of uh, the way in which these things are getting frayed, it seems, uh, that they're not working as well, that the uh, narrative power that uh, once held such strong sway over, over our everyday life, like it just isn't there any longer. And in many ways, we're looking for something that will break that glass and uh, disrupt the entire thing. So that's oftentimes why you see people championing folks who are uh, almost chaotic uh, in how they behave in our, in our larger society. Uh, it's like that train wreck that you can't look away from and we're almost secretly cheering them on. Yeah, you know, break break that Twitter, Elon Musk, or you know, whatever it is. Um, there's this kind of strange fascination with it because we we recognize that normal isn't working anymore, at least in the way that that we have been taught that it should. And so I think you know we're we're dealing with uh, some very destabilizing time periods, and you throw into that questions of ultimate reality and how things actually work and that we're not alone. And, and you can see how very quickly it would uh, be incredibly challenging to control and control is a huge part of this. Right. Right. I mean, 
kind of what you just hinted at there. I mean, already in our culture, we have major differences of opinion amongst different people groups about what reality is already, right? Um, you've got people who say that, uh, you know, maybe what we should have is a meritocracy rather than a democracy, right? So rather than, uh, you know, a real reality TV star or an ex-football player uh, becoming a political candidate just because people know them, right? Uh, you actually look for people who have a certain background and they've demonstrated that they have the skill set necessary, right? And they they have the requisite sort of depth of thinking and the ability to pause and consider different perspectives, right? But of course, that's your and I's uh, definition of what a person deserving of that role would exude, right? Those are their kind of mm -hmm. qualities, qualities we want to see. But there's a huge part of the population that would completely disagree with that, right? They would say that, ah, you know, college education and deep thinking just gets you in trouble. You know, just you got your Bible, you're good to go. I don't want those people making decisions for my kids. You've got some parts mm -hmm. of America where... You know, you can't even get a library started because you've got a huge contingent of uh, parents who want to burn books or ban books that are that are pretty commonplace and that 30 years ago, it wasn't a big deal to have those books, you know, in the library system. Uh, so you've got, that's just within our country, right? You've got these huge disparities in terms of what reality is and how you should govern, right? And And some people seemingly willing to jettison democracy if that's the only way they can ensure that their version of what America should be gets in, right? So mm -hmm. that's why I think it's laughable when people say, oh, I think we're totally ready for this disclosure. I'm like, what do you mean we're ready? We, we can't even handle what we have now. Uh, so, so when people say that, I think a couple of things. Either they're not thinking it through very clearly. They're, they're applying their own situation to everybody else too much, right? They're saying, well, I'm ready, so everybody else probably is too. And my, my friend John, my brother Chris, he's ready too, right? But that's not a very you know re uh, representative sample of the entire culture. Um, yeah, so it's... it's uh, uh, we keep coming back to this. It's incredibly complex. But I think because you and I are, are willing to, you know, hold open the door, we don't need to have um, all the energy sucked out into one room or the other. We don't need a vacuum. We, we are okay with some ambiguity. I'm willing to be open to the notion that there are some people who have argued for keeping this under wraps for now, really because they do think that's in the best interest of the public good. And whether or not you agree with that is a different question, but I think it's important mm -hmm. to acknowledge. I think there are some people like that. It's not all just all these power mongers who are worried about like losing their power, uh, being thrown out of government or that we're going to solve climate change and have free energy. And they just don't want that because they're greedy. There are some like that, but there are some that honestly look at this and they look at the already the chaotic nature of our culture. And they say, I don't know. This is the one more thing that they can handle right now. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's worth considering it from different points of view. And it's easy to uh, to argue from a vacuum, right? When we don't, there's so much we don't know um, in terms of what data they're sitting on. It's easy to sort of become an armchair quarterback and make decisions. But until you're really in that situation, fully aware of the, of the implications, you don't really know what you would do. Um, but that said, again, I think it comes down to 
how much of a shock to the system do you feel we need? And I think every person will answer that slightly differently. You and I talked earlier tonight about when you have a family and responsibilities, it kind of changes the equation a bit. And it certainly does, right? Um, and then it again, it becomes an interesting calculus between are my kids better off with trying to maintain the status quo and change things incrementally? Or is it in their long-term best interest to like blow everything up now? Not literally, but I mean, figuratively for the sake of maybe by the time they're my age, they have a, a world that seems more peaceful, sustainable, um, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I want to explore too, like to what extent do you think that holding back some of the maybe fundamental uh discoveries, uh, keeping those discoveries behind closed doors, it creates a real power disparity. Uh, in other words, they're weaponizing uh, nature's, uh, the nature of reality to their advantage, or they're weaponizing technology that they've acquired uh, to the state's advantage, uh, you know, at the detriment of their own citizenry, let alone those who are in the rest of the world. There are certainly signs that point to that being the case. I mean, like remote viewing in particular comes to mind. This, uh, you know, sort of discovery that, you know, of non-locality and uh, our ability to kind of peer into, you know, different places in time and space and, and, and retrieve information as if we were there, uh, you know, has, has absolutely been used by our government in some form or fashion, uh, has been studied, and, and most would agree who've studied this closely, that it's still happening to this day. Uh, but, but that one little fact is a insight into the nature of how reality actually is that would probably change the rest of the world. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a, I can see why they keep it secret because it's a, it gives them a great degree of power, but it's, it also feels very selfish to withhold that kind of knowledge about the nature of reality from, from all of us. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we're spending an episode getting into this because there's so many nuances to it. It really is so complex. And I, I, I want to be careful to dance around a bit here because I don't want to give people the impression that I'm I'm all you know for disclosure or completely against disclosure. I'm saying that I think it's complicated. I do think though, to your point, that absolutely, and I want to make this clear, there have been some military groups, some elite elitist groups who have kept this for themselves, and they've been in a, a silo of thinking for so long, a culture silo for so long, that they no longer are able to distinguish between what's really in the best interest of the society they supposedly serve versus what's in their best interest as a, as a group or as a, you know, some sort of body that's in power. They, they really can't even separate the two anymore. And because there is no conversation going on with the public to ensure that they are making decisions in our best interest because they claim national security. And so you have this disconnect, right, for generations now, basically, um, that that makes it all more likely that they're they're completely out of touch with what what really would matter to the rest of us. And by the way, speaking of generations, that's that's a big reason why there's this push to get whistleblowers in front of Congress, because a lot of these people are passing away. I mean, right, this has been generations of secrecy, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I think there is clear evidence that I see that there have been some elitist kind of military groups that have even made 
um, accords with some of the less benevolent extraterrestrial groups or non-human intelligent groups, and that they, while they may justify to themselves that this is in the best interest of the populace, that doesn't mean it actually is. It just means that they are able to convince themselves of that. And I really do think they sometimes sincerely believe that. But this is exactly why you have democracy. This is exactly why you're supposed to have transparency, because everyone can get it, get into a place where they're a bit deluded about how that would land with the populace if there isn't an ongoing conversation going on. So um, siloed thinking is a huge part of the problem um, in terms of you know, even different agencies sharing information so we can try and get more of a robust understanding. And as I say all this too, it occurs to me, I, I sort of have my own understanding of what's going on, right? And then I sort of put on this other hat where I sort of become a typical ufologist behind the scenes talking about what's going on. But those are kind of two different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So just so people are clear right now, I'm sort of the typical ufologist hat I'm wearing right now. And um, from that point of view, I can see how people are adamant. We just need data. Give us data and let us decide what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a, you know, you bring up a good point there that the more one spends with the topic, the more, um, I guess, like, I hate to use the word, you know, concrete, but ideas become a little bit more concrete as to what it actually is. And I know you've come uh, along on your own journey to a place where you feel a little more strongly about, you know, what it actually is. And um, uh, that leads me to, to the question of, you know, how much should we really be fixating on the, the issue of disclosure anyway? You know, like, because I, I think about this quite a bit, right? Like, to me, there are enough truths about reality that don't involve UFOs or, you know, paranormality that occupy my own thinking enough and, and kind of, and I can arrive in a very similar place without needing those nuggets of information. Um, so, you know, an example, it would be uh, just how vast the universe actually is. The chances that there are other intelligent life forms other than us that exist and, and who are arguably far more intelligent than we are, like, I mean, the math is just astronomically in favor of that. So whether they're here or not, I don't even need that to be true to know that they're real, um, just based on the math. And if they're real, then what does that then mean for my own way of thinking, my own cosmology, uh, the, these questions of ultimate truth? Uh, because I can then easily go from that one nugget to, well, let, let's take an analogy from where we actually are. So, you know, we talked about this before the show, but, you know, we, we know there are other life forms that occupy our earth. There are ants, there are fish, and they live in their own little biomes and they have absolute zero awareness or very little awareness that they're interacting with us. And, and to, to an ant or a fish, like they've got reality all figured out. Like it, it makes perfect sense. And, and we're, we're in this scenario, we're, we're the same. We're, we're the ant, we're, we're, we're the fish and the larger biome is the universe. And, you know, we have this arrogance that, oh, you know, we've got this all figured out and you've got our, you know, physicists, our popular physicists on TV all the time, you know, making these grand pronouncements about, you know, what alien life might be or, 
what, what have you, but uh, we're, we're just as ignorant, if not more so, than those ants and fish, right? And so I, I guess, you know, I want to put it to you. I mean, how important is it that somebody steps up to a podium and says, hey, we've got bodies, hey, we've got craft, and, uh, and you know, it's going to change your life forever. You know, do we, do we even need that, in other words, to come to the kind of awareness that, that we probably should be arriving at, just taking into consideration what we already know about our, our own experience? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier remote viewing. I mean, there is all sorts of evidence, you know, within parapsychology to demonstrate how valid psi is, right? And um, so we don't need to have proof that a gray alien can telepathically communicate to, to John Doe, right? Uh, we know that human beings can do it. Uh, we know that when people experience a near-death experience, it seems to be the case that the physical body is not the sum total of what a human being is, and that um, they these people will sometimes come back with new capacities. You know, for instance, they have precognitive dreams, or they can sense people's emotions or their thoughts. Right? New capacities come online that are very uncannily similar to what happens when people are sometimes in the presence of a gray alien or something like that. So, you know, you think, yeah, out of body experiences, near death experiences remote viewing, telepathy, telekinesis, you know, all these things that we have evidence that even if most people are not like in, you know, incredibly skillful in these zones yet in these areas, we do see evidence pretty much across the board that everyone to some degree is psychic, right? Which already tells us, as you're hinting at, something fundamental about the nature of reality, right? That that what the conventional model tells us can't be correct. And what's surprising about that, and you and I were talking about this before we went on the air, it hasn't really changed much, right? Or even like, you know, quantum mechanics. And you said earlier, you know, like local realism is not a thing, right? I mean, uh, a Pulitzer surprise was recently won by a group who demonstrated this. And yet, you know, this is not the kind of thing you you see on the, the, the magazines at the Walmart checkout, right? I mean, it's generally not, right? So it's more like, what are the Kardashians doing this week? So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the center of gravity of our civilization, right? I mean, even when we do have, for those who are really paying attention, those who have eyes to see, um, we have all we need basically already to say that reality is fundamentally different and more connected than what we've been told. And yet it has not changed the, the majority position. Um, and so, like you say, it begs the question, if there's a press conference tomorrow where they say, here's some photos of the bodies, here's the craft. As it turns out, we've been able to, you know, re-engineer a couple of these. How much would that really change things? You know, I think some people kind of have this Shangri-La hope that it's going to be the one thing that's really going to tip the scales. And suddenly we'll be working with free energy 10 years from now and there'll be no multinational corporations and the free market system will have been you know, given birth to something much more synergistic and sustainable and, you know, all, all these kind of pipe dreams that you ask, is that really connected to reality based on what we just said, that already there's revelation of all these things being true. And yet most of the populace either is not aware of it or when they're aware of it, it just doesn't really change their day-to-day -day behavior. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And, and think too, uh, you know, situations that I'm sure a lot of folks uh, fantasize about since we've grown up with these kinds of cultural influences, but, oh, I could have a spaceship, you know, I could, I could travel the galaxy and I could visit different alien worlds and, you know, whatever. But I mean, the consequences of, uh, you know, billions of humans just sort of, you know, dispersing themselves through the universe, uh, you know, riding around with the, uh, you know, technology that could very easily weaponize to wipe out other civilizations is absolutely horrible. And by the way, we're moving into a time period in our, in our own culture and our own technological advancement where we could basically have that experience without actually, without actually leaving our planet, you know? So uh, we're, um, I mean, you know, I have a, a fascination with uh, the AI art and, and uh, I'm really interested in where that's going. And, and it's very easy for me to see that we are on the uh, the very beginning stages of, of a custom, uh, a highly customized experience of reality that will be brought to all of our eyeballs and senses, uh, you know, at our at our beck and call. And uh, we don't need spaceships to have that. So, um, you know, it's just it's just interesting to me the motivations that I observe behind the need for disclosure. And, you know, kind of assessing what those motivations might be and the, and the character of individuals that are calling for that. And, you know, what is it they're going to do with that information? You know, how is it they're going to change? What, what, what is their life going to be like? How will they interact with their people differently? Uh, and, 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 you know, also to the point, if, if, uh, if this is real for you, then, you know, it should be changing the way you live your life right now. You know, you shouldn't need someone to step forward on in an official capacity and, and make a pronouncement uh, for you to live differently in the world uh, where, where you happen to be. You know, how are you treating those that you care about? How are you treating those that you live near? Uh, what, what are the decisions that you're making? I mean, these are things that we still have to figure out. And a disclosure of an alien body is going to solve that for us. Right. And I think of two um, tangents that I can go on with that point. The first one being that um, the irony is, in some ways, all the evidence you need already exists, you know, again, depending on what you consider evidence, right? We've discussed this before. But to me, it seems preposterous that this wealth of experience for literature we have, that going back decades now, is is all dismissible as you know anecdotal therefore we can't take it seriously whatever there's just so much overlap so many common elements even absurdly common elements right that people wouldn't want to bring into the picture that are there amongst people that are considered credible and as i've said many times even if you allow for a fairly large portion to be fraudulent or misidentified or whatever your, your mental illness you know you can add all that in but you still with a sheer number it's still pointing to a real reality. You know, it's, it's saying that there are these beings that um, are kind of across the board in terms of the moral spectrum. While some people want to say it's all love and light or all demons and darkness, I don't see how you square that with the data. I think, yes, sometimes people have ontologically shocking experiences and they ascribe negative qualities to beings that were not trying to be negative or malevolent. But there are also plenty of times where the encounters are definitely more um, intrusive and and negative in tone than they need to be, right? Especially for a supposedly advanced race. On the other hand, uh, you know, there are beings that are very positive and inspirational and heal people, right? And 
we have depictions of these beings seen across cultures and over time, right? And we have, you know, narratives around where they come from and to what degree are they extraterrestrial and what degree are they interdimensional. I'm not saying it's easy to sort all that out and you still always have to work through people's individual biases, their individual interpretive grids that they're pulling this information through, but you can still do the work to try to mass all that data, take into account all those different worldviews and still see what strains through, right? As sort of like common ground. And that basically gives you everything you need. I mean, we, we know that, I mean, again, I'm going to bring in some of my own cosmology here, but from my, under, my, my point of view, you know, the most advanced ones are post form and beyond the need for spacecraft, right? They, they just sort of travel, and manifest via thought alone, right? So they don't need a spacecraft from Alpha Centauri to get here. Um, if they do, it's usually for some other reason, uh, not, not because they need it. Uh, there's some ones that are further along than us, but not as far along as these other ones I've talked about that can just move through mentation processes alone, who do use spacecraft and are working with technologies that might be something we come across on our own 50 to 100 years into the future. Um, but just like us, there's a range of, you know, moral development across that spectrum too. Some are, they're not malevolent or demonic, but they may still be kind of power brokers and trying to play the game and win the game. Just like some, you know, politicians who think that they'll smile and tell you the right thing, but really they're out for what they, how they can gain, or maybe they see it as a a win-win for both or whatever. The point being, it's complex, and and I don't know why people think it would be any different with these others. But the bottom line is, all of this data already exists. So for me, uh, and this is beyond sort of like the revelations I've had and some of the contact experiences, but for me, in some ways, and even people like Stephen Greer have said this, right? What this really is is about confirmation, not disclosure, right? He, he says that mm. we know what's going on. Uh, what we really want is the governments of the world to confirm this case so that it can begin to have the ripple effects through society. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I think we would both probably agree that those ripple effects aren't exactly easy to predict. Um, and because there are varying degrees of information to disclose, some of which we, I think, may know pretty clearly, but others uh, become a little bit more ambiguous. Um, what that actually means and how it inf- impacts people becomes more and more difficult to predict because we don't, I mean, it's hard to game that out if we don't really know to the extent that we, what we know or don't know. Um, you know, the example that you gave a second ago reminded me of something that we talked about before we went on air. And that's the notion that some of these beings, and, and this is the reason why I'm bringing this up because in our recent conversations, this has been particularly helpful for me and how I conceptualize some of these others, that they are, uh, as you said, perhaps more technologically advanced than us, but not necessarily uh, more more morally advanced or maybe on a similar developmental level uh, than we are. Um, And so, you know, imagine, if you will, that uh, we had the technology to visit another planet that had life forms on it that were, uh, you know, primitive human in, in, their, in their intelligence level. And, but we could come down in our spacecraft and we, of course, we would be sending our astronauts and our and astronauts are often also scientists. So they, 
very particular kinds of people, you know, would be coming down these spacecraft and would be introducing them, them themselves to these primitive uh, intelligences. And if, assuming that they could have some kind of meaningful communication, uh, we would be imparting whatever knowledge we think we have understood about reality, you know, to these primitive beings. And to them, you know, it would, it would just seem like, well, that's just the way that it is, right? I mean, they told me that this is, you know, this is how it works. And well, gee, that that's what reality must be. But you and I know that our notion of reality, even if we've been able to master space flight, you know, to that degree, like it's still evolving and limited. So, you know, that gives you a certain picture about what might be happening here. I think a lot of folks attribute a kind of godlike knowledge to the others that uh, they have some sort of all-encompassing awareness about how things actually are. And I would argue that that's absolutely impossible. Uh, There's there's no way that that could be true. Um, So I want you you to touch on that. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, um, from my perspective, even some of the most ascendant uh, non-human intelligences arrive at a a real place of humility, even though they're much more advanced than we are, and they will voluntarily say, "There's plenty we don't know either." We we can we're happy to grant as much knowledge as we can based on our understanding, but beyond that, even that's you know a black hole to us in terms of what's on the other side of it, right? Because it spirals all the way up. Um, and I also think it's important for people to keep in mind that just because you get abducted by a gray alien who tells you this is a prison planet and they have a right to dominate us, doesn't mean that's true. <laughs> I mean, like this goes to what you're saying about the godlike powers. Like we, uh, right. if someone abducted us that was a human being and said, actually, my name's Quasar and I'm the second incarnation of Christ, we might not take him at his word, right? Um, right. <laughs> why would we do it because it's a gray alien? Because it's a gray alien. That's why we do it, right? It's so mm. other and we're we're in such a degree of ontological shock about reality is not what we thought that we are we've we've taken our discernment offline and we feel uh, in these kind of, I'm talking about the negative ones. There's plenty of positive encounters with gray aliens, but I'm talking about the negative ones because again, it's more about developmental levels and it's about a particular kind of appearance of a being. People need to remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they 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 sometimes will deliberately put you in a position that will make you feel like an animal, because they know what that does to you psychologically, right? So I sometimes see people, and this is, again, why I have a very, you know, nuanced view on this. There's many different elements of it. I see some people, and I myself have had really positive encounters with benevolent entities, but that isn't to say there aren't some that are not so much. And again, not so much because they're malevolent, demonic, like always were, always will be dark beings. I don't mean that. I mean that they're just lower on the de- developmental scale. And so they're still power brokers. They're still in a zero sum game. Even if they give you something, it's because they want something in return, you know, just like human beings. Right. Mm. Um, I remember mm. one time seeing this, this uh, real estate show is one of these house flip shows. Right. And this one guy was, you know, fixing up this house. He was going to flip like a week later and some neighbors came over and he was just on some street, another house that he'd bought. Right. And he said to them, yeah, I'm just trying to bring some real dignity to the community. And I thought, <laughs> what a load of hogwash. I mean, he's trying to make a quick flip right. and make a buck. I'm not saying that's wrong, but when he tells people that this is why I'm doing it, I mean, come on, who's he fooling kind right. of thing? So, But he may even delude himself into thinking that's what he's doing, right? Or maybe he partly feels good about the fact that it, there's, a, there's another consequence to him making money. 
I'm saying it's sure. it's a mixed bag, right? In terms of the the impetus for that kind of interaction there. And I'm saying it's the same way with some of these others. And I think sometimes if people have to try too hard to figure out why that must be a positive encounter, maybe it's not as positive as they think. Because um, if you're in a situation where dominance seems to be a key element just for the sake of dominance, not because it serves some evident purpose, then I would say that tells you something, right? And again, this is where discernment is so, so key. We can't put our discernment on the shelf just because these are gray aliens or celestial beings or beings of light or whatever. Whatever they look like, you know, pay attention to the fruit of the endeavor. You know, how does it impact you? How do they treat you? Um, the, the most highly civilized ones, the ones furthest along this this scale of or the spectrum of development, see you as an equal. They see in you a reflection of the cosmic intelligence, which they see in each other as well. And if something's not there, then that's telling you they're not as far along as you might think otherwise, regardless of what the uh, their technology might indicate. Hmm. Well, yeah, I wanted to talk about discernment because uh, it, it is something that I wonder a great deal about, particularly with your own journey and uh, how you seem to have developed some greater clarity around what things are, how things are working. And uh, I, I wanted you to touch a little bit about how on a little bit, how we can really di discern the nature of how things are, even if we are maybe many degrees removed from the greater scope of awareness that we might need to be able to make such pronouncements. And, you know, an example that you gave to me, uh, in our, an earlier conversation is sort of this kind of uh, fractal nature of reality that uh, there are repeating kinds of patterns uh, throughout reality itself that you can kind of take, you know, smaller and smaller slices of it, yet there are similar qualities that are present. And I wonder if you can kind of unpack that a little bit uh, related to this notion of discernment, um, because I think, you know, for me as well, like it's difficult to you know, understand the kind of certainty that you seem to have around this, um, particularly when one of my earlier thoughts when it came to non-human intelligence was, and still is to some degree, the the asymmetrical nature of knowledge here in the relationship. You know, how, how am I able to trust, you know, these other intelligences? What is it that, of anything that they're telling to me or revealing to us that I can take at face value? Um, and, and you speak a lot about intuition and, 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 uh, and the discernment quality here. And I just wonder if, you know, how do we parse that? Because, you know, what if somebody says, well, you know, Darren there, I know, I know that's what it feels like to you, but they're making you feel that way and you, you want to feel those things. And so therefore, you know, you're, you're being duped by them. Right. I mean, I had someone recently say this sincerely, like they were actually wanting to know my opinion on it, not because they, they necessarily thought I was being duped or other people were being duped, but they were just saying, so, you know, theoretically, we know that they can impact our moods, our emotions. They can, you know, seemingly calm us down when they need to. What's to say with that degree of granular ability to manipulate our mental and emotional states that they couldn't make us believe they're these benevolent, angelic-like beings when really they're anything but. I would say a couple things to that. 
and, and it gets complex. Um, <laughs> I say that almost every question now, but, <laughs> but I do think a lot of people have lost touch with their ability to trust their discernment and t- for their discernment to be arising from a quality of the non-dual source of all that is. And what I was saying to you about the fractal quality was like, kind of like with a, with a hologram, you know, is a, a small slice of the totality, right? No matter how many times you divide it up, it's still got the totality in that, right? So it's not just that we are, you know, in God or in the cosmic source, but the cosmic source is in us. And so when we are discerning from that place, then we have a remarkable ability to tune into that because the um, the principles of that source knowledge apply across the cosmos. So this is, again, where you're going to get into some presuppositions, right? Like uh, Donald Hoffman will say, I think consciousness is fundamental. And I'm going to say if consciousness is fundamental and you grant me that, then I'm going to try and boot up everything else that we see in our apparent reality. But what he'll point out is that reductionistic materialists or physicalists are doing the very same thing. They're saying, I'm going to assume there's this thing called matter. And from that, I'm going to boot up consciousness and blah, blah, blah. But they too are like beginning with some assumptions, some givens. I admit that I am too, but but I would just say that I'm I'm following in tradition, not only of my own uh, experiences with some of these others, but as I was saying to you before the show, this also fits with all of the, the best sort of spiritual wisdom we've um, inherited over you know, the entire existence of humanity, basically, this sense of non-dual source, this sense that consciousness is the bedrock of all that is. Um, and so it's it's in the same way also that I said earlier, you know, picture yourself in that that um, apartment in Tokyo two months from now. How do you feel, right? That's that same thing I'm talking about, that element of being outside of space and time. And you're somehow able to take your rational mind offline and tune into something that's really real and it's really fundamental, okay? And the truth is we're doing that much more often than we realize and then after the fact, justifying it with rationality, right? And we fool ourselves mm-hmm. even into thinking that the the rationality is what made us make that decision when it's usually the gut instinct and then we, after the fact, wrap that in a cloak of this rationality. In the same mm-hmm. way, I'm saying that rather than going, hmm, this alien being seems good. I mean, he gave me chocolate and he said nice things to me and made me feel warm fuzzies, you know, but he could also be, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's not that kind of pros and cons list that, that, that again is more in that kind of rational uh, approach. And I'm saying this is trans-rational or pre, pre-rational. Um, trans-rational is a better term there. And, mm-hmm. and so you have this direct knowing. And I think when you have developed your, consciousness, when you've developed your sense of being able to tune in to non-dual source, then I do believe we have the capacity to do that, even when we're faced with a being that seems to have uh, capacities that make our technologies and our understanding of the nuances of consciousness seem small and incomplete. Um, I think that I'm confident that if one of these beings tried to pull a fast one on Ramana, Ramana Maharshi, it wouldn't work. Okay. So I think that, mm. um, we sometimes sell short our own ability to develop a real heightened, nuanced, uh, sense of discernment that really is trustworthy. 
You know, of course, we need to do all our homework. We need to be aware of our own biases. We need to do our shadow work, all that kind of stuff, spiritual hygiene, all these things I've talked about. But I kind of balk at the notion that we have no ability to know really what these others mean. Uh, I think we do. And I think that's what I sort of trust here. Mm-hmm. Well, and I recognize as well, uh, part of my uh, inhibition in uh, struggling with this issue it, you know, it, it, it's, it stems from my own personality and, uh, you know, issues that I have with uh, institutions or, you know, authority and, um, you know, trust is, uh, it's a difficult thing to, uh, I think, really objectively acquire um, because it can be violated at any moment, right? Just because uh, you've developed a, a trusting relationship with a friend or whatnot doesn't mean they can't break that in the next interaction, you know, so it's always a little bit fragile. Uh, Can we just jump in for one second? Because I I think one thing I said on point of convergence, I I try to bring up this analogy for people. And I heard this in a, in a Buddhist proverb one time to just really help people understand elementally what's going on here. And I said, you know, in this situation, say, say you accidentally, you know, knock one hand with the other and that hand bangs against a sharp object and you cut yourself, right? What your one hand does is it caresses the other hand, right? And you sort of rub it and try to feel better, right? Now, when that's done, does the left hand say, no, now, now I'm feeling better. I'm going to get back at your right hand. You mother, you know, how dare you do that? You know, <laughs> it doesn't cross our mind, right? It, it, it's, it's preposterous for us to think about, you know, hands of the same body having that kind of adversarial relationship. And I'm saying that at this sense of non-duality, it really is no different. I know people think that sounds nice. Maybe that people that aren't there, they say, well, that's, that sounds like a nice notion. But I'm saying that really is what's happening is that the calculus at that level, because of the felt experience, the same way that you have two hands, that it never occurs to you that you really see those as ultimately separate. You see them part of you, right? And I'm saying that sense of you expands, ever expands into a a broader and broader sphere of concern and influence uh, as you move up this spiral of consciousness. And so for these others, that's why I think you can trust their sense of, you know, how they would hold power or how they would consider you versus them. Because at that point, it really is no different for them between you and them than it is between your left and your right hand. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you mentioned uh, moments ago, and that can be discerned by how you are being treated by them. Um, you know, if you are being treated as a peer uh, or you know, respected in, in a similar way, then that's a good hint that they are, in fact, uh, living in that kind of non-dual expression. That's a great point. I mean, um, if they are taking it out on the left hand with the right hand, then you have to ask, where are they really coming from? And that, that's that's, I think... When people point to this notion of Stockholm syndrome, right, where people historically have been taken captive by other human beings who held them hostage, and they feel such a loss of agency, no sense of sovereignty, that they eventually begin to align with the the intentions and the motives and the agenda of their captives just to regain some sense of a semblance of agency, right? And I think that does happen here. I, I think this is, again, where I... I um, I end up offending both the love and light and the demons of darkness people because I say it's 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 too complex for that, and you need to apply basic discernment. But like you're, you're pointing out, you know, if if they are not treating you as an equal, if they are not 
um, going out of their way to show you know love and concern. Now, again, I just want to quickly say again in the nuance, sometimes things are misunderstood. There's errors in translation. Uh, sometimes they are startled or uh, they're not expecting how much we do have an individuated experience of self. And so they don't know that it's going to be um, so ontologically shocking for us when they're suddenly inside our heads or where they can draw our consciousness out of our body and spin us around in a new energy form with them, right? Uh, they don't know how we're going to respond because that's not been their felt experience. But in that case, it's just a matter of um, ignorance, not knowing any better, but still meaning well. That's a big difference from that when you interact from when you interact with beings that you know um, are being dominating just for the sake of being dominating. Like they're trying to set up a power arrangement in the nature of the experience itself. And I think if people really feel into it and they apply discernment, they will be able to determine much of the time which one of those it actually is. Hmm. Well, if uh, if you weren't sure that metaphysics was at the heart of this uh, really conversation, then I hope that that's becoming very clear uh, because so much of this does come down to our, our metaphysical model of reality. And I'd like to point out just in saying that, that the the west you know having interacted with whatever this happens to be you know has a has a metaphysical you know sort of heritage there um and it's not necessarily and i would argue not very much at all in alignment with a non-dual perspective on reality and so take that heritage and take the interaction that we have reportedly had with these others and you very easily can come back to where we started this conversation in, in a situation where your uh, limited, uh, I think, narrow perspective on, on reality really does constrain it. it, 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 it just like that, that gray alien is in a, in a plexiglass box, you know, we're in a clear box constrained by our metaphysical presuppositions. And that kind of thinking and heritage has absolutely dominated and influenced where we are today. And imagine where we would be if we had had those interactions and we had had them from a completely different metaphysical standpoint. Yeah. And part of the irony with all that is that some of the very messages these others are bringing have been around for thousands of years via Vedantic and Buddhist traditions in terms of non-duality. And yet, even though that knowledge existed in some parts of the world, it's not like that changed the face of civilization, right? And what we've, in light of what you just talked about in terms of our metaphysical heritage here in the West, are the way we've been convinced of the illusion, right? That the physical nature of reality is ultimate, it's really real, and it's all that there really is, has become even more convincing because we've been able to manipulate it through technology and whatnot to transform at least one surface layer of our reality, right? And so most people are not closer to sort of a Vedantic understanding, non-dual understanding of, of reality. Many people are further away. Ironically, even though we have like, like you talked about earlier, plenty of evidence coming from other places. Like again, the implications of quantum theory are telling you that your physical reality is not really real, right? Um, your sense of self is not really real. I mean, all these things that we sort of take as given, speaking of these presuppositions, are kind of demonstrably not true. Like we just know that now, but because like the matrix, you know, we, we like the, 
you know, that red, that steak tastes so good, right? Even if it's an illusion, you're just going to keep chewing, chewing away and you'd rather almost just live in ignorance kind of thing or semi-ignorance, right? Um, so yeah, it just goes to show again, speaking of coming, coming back full circle to what would disclosure actually bring? Again, the ironic aspect here is that some of this understanding of the non-dual, non-physical ultimate nature of reality is already in the milieu in different places. There's already evidence of it in our ancient spiritual traditions and even coming out of modern notions like quantum theory. And yet it really hasn't changed the society all that much. You could say we're more wedded to our physicalist model because of the shiny toys we've been able to develop over the last couple hundred years than we were beforehand. So that again, raises a real question, what really would disclosure bring? Yeah, 100%. Um, I feel that we're on a precipice there, uh, that our technology, our uh, capacity and capability to craft uh, you know, experiences and worlds of our own choosing, um, it really is going to solidify this materialistic worldview um, and make it almost inescapable. And uh, maybe we can kind of touch on that on a future show you know, what are the implications of our society uh, doubling and tripling down on that perspective, uh, even in the face of some of these uh, revelations about non-duality and, and how reality actually is? Because uh, I do think we are faced with a choice here. And um, much of the phenomena, in my opinion, is an invitation to see things differently. And uh, what happens if we don't answer that call and uh, decide to remain in our ignorant states. Um, you know, so that'd be worth, I think, digging into a little bit more in the future. Yeah. And part of the, again, I keep using this word irony uh, here is that I think in the long run, these revelations will catch up with us that will develop our technology to such a degree that we realize we're back where we started in some ways. We're, we're back, you know, mm. sitting in the cave with Ramana Maharshi and realizing that all manipulation and exploration of reality already exists within us. All the technology we need is inner technology, inner science. And it took us this huge exploration in this one surface layer of apparent reality, illusory reality, to eventually be convinced by the sheer volume of data that that's exactly where it took us, which is ironically where we began. Mm. Yeah. Well, we appreciate folks uh, joining us on this journey uh, in episode 19. And uh, I know we've got a couple episodes left to go before the end of the year. And uh, also, I'm looking forward to the uh, Inquire Anomalous uh, conference I'll be uh, heading to later this week. So I hope to meet a lot of our listeners who, who will be there in person. Um, and uh, we'll keep this conversation going. So, Exo, it's been a real pleasure. And... Uh, We'll end where we always do. Uh, thank you for listening, and may the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames. <laughs>